This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Amazing War Stories Extra Ammo. I'm Ed Sayer, the writer and producer of the main podcast Amazing War Stories. And sitting to my left, I have the legend that is Bruce Crompton. Oh, I don't know about legend, but Ed, I am absolutely ecstatic to be here to be doing this for our listeners. Because as you know, I am passionate about military heritage and what we're trying to do to save museums. So Bruce, tell our listeners what we've got in store for them. We're going to get to tell people about some of the stories that we've covered, but gaining the individuals in far more detail. We're going to be showing you the artefacts. We're going to be telling you about the artefacts. We're going to be telling you where to go and see these things. We're going to cover the whole lot. And it's just great to be on the first one here, sitting with you, telling people what we're doing. Great. It's, it's going to be a smorgasbord of military history, little-known facts and exciting stories. Well, I love a bit of grub, as you can see, so I can have a smorgasbord seven days a week. Okay, okay. so this first episode, um, uh, we're not going to have a guest because the guest, in fact, is you. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, for our listeners overseas in particular that might not know mm-hmm. uh, Bruce Crompton, um, they've probably been living in a cave or... They're somewhere really remote. I thought we should do an episode dedicated to who you are, mm-hmm. why you're into military history, mm-hmm. and why you're so passionate about this subject. Where does your story begin, Bruce? Well, my story begins, I'm a, as you can probably tell from the accent, I'm a proper East Ender. I was born in the East End uh, in a flat above a moneylenders. My father was a merchant seaman away. He was away at sea a lot. My mother obviously looked after myself and my two sisters. And it all started there because... From an early day, I was always interested in those comics, Victor and Commando, and they used to stir me juices up and just wanted me to read more and more and more and know more and more and more. Oh, I, I used to love those comics. You're talking about the um, those little square ones. Absolutely. They were like 7p, weren't they? Yeah. I, I remember as a little kid going down to the newsagents and they'd bring out, I think, like four a month. Mm-hmm. And they'd, uh, but they weren't true stories, though, were they? No, some were based around two sto- true stories. And then also what they did. But, you know, what's interesting, they've become collector's items in their own right now. Amazing. Commando comic, collector's item. So how did you first get into collecting them? So my old story started um, when I was 11 years old. Although I'd been passionate about reading the comics and bits and pieces, I used to go to a primary school and I used to have to walk past a guy's garden to get home. 
And I remember one day looking over the wall, being nosy as I was, and seeing that he had a greenhouse at the bottom of his garden. And lo and behold, in that greenhouse, upside down, was a German helmet with daffodils to get out of it. Aye, aye, I said. Right, right up my street. So I went past it many, many times. But on the last day I was at that primary school, I plucked up the courage to go and knock on the door and say to him, Hello, mate. Can you sell me that German helmet? Now, I didn't have a tanner. The bloke went, what are you talking about? I haven't got a clue. I said, you've got a German helmet in your greenhouse at the bottom of your garden. He went, just a minute, just a minute. Left the door open, disappeared for 10 minutes, came back, he shanked the daffodils out, and he went, there you go, you can have it. And that was the first military item I ever got. Incredible. How old were you at the time? I was 11 years old then. Right. But what's interesting... I've still got that item today. Right, this, believe it or not, is the actual helmet that I got. Now, it didn't have a liner in. This is an M42 helmet, and that's the first item I ever had. Now, you know, I was 11, I'm nearly 67 now, and I've still got it, and I'll never, ever get rid of that. Now, the thing about these, obviously, is the colours can change as well, but that's the one. So this is, I believe, um, what's known as a Starm helmet. Yeah. Is that right? Am I saying yeah. that right? Yeah, yeah. Apart from this being your first ever item, what makes this helmet special? Is there anything special about it? Obviously, being the first item for me, but it, and, but it is important. It is very important for me, again, because that started me on the road to the collecting. But you've got to remember the problem you've got now. I collect helmets as well, and I've got a vast collection of those. The problem you've got now, because of the value of these things, right, they can be easily faked. Now, a helmet like that, in that sort of condition, is probably about 250 quid. But an unscrupulous dealer can take an original decal, which is a marker on the side of the helmet, and put those on and then sell it as something it's not with a value up to £7,000. £7,000? So this helmet is 7000 quid? If it was faked, yeah. Um, obviously, there are experts. You've got to be very careful what you're buying. I've got very good friends that are experts with that as well. But even I've been fooled over the years. I mean, the, another one they fake very, very all the time. In Normandy, a lot of the Germans camouflage their, their helmets, right, with paint and bits and pieces. So that's so easy to reproduce, make it rough, roll it around, chuck it outside, leave it outside, and then they've got a Normandy camouflage helmet. And then you're talking three, four grand. The SS ones are the ones that are most faked. That's the SS, the Waffen SS, with the decal on the side. And they reproduce the decals, but you can get original decals. So you've got to be very, buyer beware, be very careful. This looks like, to me, and again, I'm, to my untutored eye, mm. it's kind of like been the same design since World War One. Oh, absolutely not. The the ones of the the first World War ones are actually slightly different as well. They actually they got two like little horns come out here as well. You could fit an armoured plate onto it as well. And they changed the design. And even from the Second World War, they changed the design from the beginning of the war right through to the end of the war. The main reason being, obviously, material was short. Manufacturing had to be speeded up. And so what they did was the original helmets had a rolled rim underneath, so M38. And then you had the M40, then the M42. But that is a late war helmet with, the, obviously, the clear edge like that. Oh, right, because it hasn't got a roll. So this is... Uh, and what's the... Um, what, 
it's the the number to do with the year it's produced. Yeah, the, designed actually it means the year it was designed. But right. believe me, they were used for a lot of other things outside keeping your old head safe. Uh, what? Okay, so I was going to ask that. So what? Um, what other uses did these help? Right. Have? So at the end of the war, obviously there was a lot of surplus war equipment back in Germany. And I mean, that's everything, rounds, all kinds of things. So the Germans made use of all kinds. Now, I happen to have one here prepared. This is what we call a pooper scooper. <laughs> now, this is a 38. It's got the rolled rim on it. And what they've done is after the war, they've made it into a scooper, right? People might say it was a ladle. The reason we call it a pooper scooper, because uh, obviously a lot of places in Germany, the farms that didn't have mains drainage. So this is how you would clear out your old cesspit, you know? I won't ask you to put that one on. Amazing. But, you know? So just for, for people that are listening to this and not watching the video edition of this uh, of this podcast, um, this is your classic German helmet, yep. but with uh, a long piece of metal uh, bolt, welded and bolted onto the side. But they were what they did also, they took helmets, they uh, made straight edges, they, put, they made them into cauldrons, they made them into all kinds of things. Actually, I heard about that. So a lot of housewives yep. um, that were used them as cooking pots Absolutely. and like that. And then basically they were coated and they used gas mask. They used everything after the war. But that is the difference between that helmet. You see the rolled edge on that yeah, one? Yeah, I that's can see that. Yeah. So, and you know, there's a typical example of something that's going to be reused. Great. Okay, so let's move on with your uh, your origin story. So uh -huh. uh, you've you've got the helmet. You're, how old did you say you were? 11 years old. I was 11 old. years old. Then. So you're 11, 11 years, years old. old. What, what next? What's the next significant right. moment? My mother was into breeding dogs, although we didn't have a lot of room. She was into breeding dogs. And she had a very, very good friend of hers called Joe Royal, lady. But her husband was called Captain or Peter Royal, and he'd been formerly Captain Peter Royal. So he'd come over to see my parents, and he saw I had an interest in history, Second World War. And he started to um, engage with me about his experiences. Now, you've got to remember, this is, you know, right back in the... The 60s, 70s as well. Now, he had had a very, very... I mean, he'd been everywhere. But the first thing he did, he explained to me what had happened on the retreat to Dunkirk. He was one of the people that was on his way back, got evacuated off the mole. And what he did, he brought something over to me and gave it to me because he was actually thinking about doing his memoirs. And I was so excited, I couldn't believe what he brought over. So he turns up in my house and out of a bag... He pulls a German MP40 Schmeiser machine gun. <laughs> oh, I'm 13 years old. Right. I'm nearly at the deck, right? So the story behind this was he'd captured it at the early stage of the battle and he had it in his bivy or whatever. But when he got evacuated back to England, he still had it. There was a lot of uh, that going, actually. Loads. Wasn't loads. there? In fact, there was a... There wasn't there some kind of, I think, order that, uh, because that, lots of troops were coming back with mementos yep. and Lugers and that's all that right. kind of stuff. That's right, and that's exactly what happened to him. He was on the boat coming back into Southampton Harbour. Now, you weren't allowed to bring those trophies back. Unfortunately, the Americans were, and that's a little bit different, but our poor guys. So, over the Tannoy, as they came into Southampton Harbour, it said, anybody with illegal arms or whatever will be searched, blah, blah. And he reckons the back of the boat was like Agincourt. <laughs> so, I'm looking for the contract to be well, out just dredging. Just lobbing, lobbing weapons stuff, over. Lobbing stuff. But he was an officer, captain. And he thought, well, they ain't going to search me. And they didn't. 
Lo and behold, he knew he had it, and he knew it was at his brother's farm up in the loft. So he'd gone over there, gone and found it, found 200 rounds of ammunition with it, oh my God. went out in the field, fired it all off, yeah. filed down the firing pin, yeah. turned up and went, there you go. Okay, so it was deactivated the time oh, you had it. Uh, yes. I yes. mean, it's obviously deactivated properly now, but then when I was 13, it was just the firing pin. You know, I mean, I've got, I'm a 13-year-old boy with a machine gun. Let's be fair. You know, forget the, you know, the, the streets of LA and all that. I'm 13. <laughs> I'm living in the East End and I've got a machine gun. Have you got it here for me to have a look I've at? I've got a machine gun here. This is the one. There we go. That's an MP40. That's a machine gun, a Schmeiser, uh, nine millimeter. Thinking back to my Commando comics. Yep. I mean, this was the, the classic machine gun yep. uh, that every German had. Mm -hmm. Or if I was thinking back into those movies, I used to love like, um, where Eagles yeah, Dare. Yeah, you know, yeah. Clint Eastwood had yeah, one of yeah, these, didn't yeah. he? When he's uh, got two, he's far into That's it. right, that's right. Yeah. And it's what makes it stand out for me is it has this folding stock yep. that goes up under... No, press under... the button at the end there. Oh, yeah. Press that button at the other end, and then the stock will come down. Down that end, that's it. And then that clips out. Okay, right. Now, you've got to remember, this gun evolved from uh, a weapon called an MP18, a Bergman, which the Germans had in the First World War for trench clearing. And they developed it into the M38, uh, MP38, MP40, but it was mass-produced because it's all obviously pressed items on it. But we had nothing like that in the early days of the war. Obviously, we then started to get the then lease um, Thompsons in uh, up till the, uh, until we had the Stend ready. But at the beginning of the war, where we first came into contact with the Germans in Norway and everywhere, nothing like that. Now, I personally, I've got to fire all these regularly, and uh, I'm not a great lover of it. The, you know, but it was revolutionary at the time. That one's obviously been completely deactivated. It's got a certificate with it as well. But it's a very, very precious item to me as well. Right. But this, let me just show you, where I was looking through this, I've, I haven't seen this. I've not seen this since I was 11, and I found it three days ago. And that's what he gave me with the gun that day. I haven't seen that for, well... I don't know, a long time. And read, just... read it out to me, what does it so say? So it says, Schmeiser, German 9mm automatic carbine, seized on the battlefield by Captain Peter Royal, 17th Field Regiment Royal Artillery. Now, look at that. That's and I, great. I, I've I mean, never seen it. I know? mean, that's, uh, and again, you that's when you were just saying earlier, talking about the provenance of an item that's so important isn't it and i think that's the other thing when you go to museums and you see all those you know about the provenance of the items yeah. in there it's like everything everything's got its own history you know i consider myself well, all these are really precious to me i'm really a custodian for everything i've got and one day i hope they pass it on either to my grandchildren or whatever or it goes to museums but what i have done is preserve the history of it it's so important. Once you lose that history, it's gone. You know, if you bought that, um, you could buy these. I mean, they're about two and a half thousand pounds now, right? You buy one of those, and that wasn't with you. You'd never know where it came from, would you? Yeah. 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 That's where it's from. So um, what happened then? So, you know, I've got this picture of this young Bruce, a bit like, though, you know, someone out of the Just William books, you know, with his shorts and his cap on. He's got his German helmet. He's got his MP40. Um, what, what happened next? So... Bizarrely, I was fascinated with joining the army. Now, I was in the army cadets, 48 platoon, Royal Army Ordnance Corps, and I just loved it. And one 
uh, we had one visit. Uh, we we went over to Aldershot to the parachute regiment, the junior parachute regiment. Now at that time you could join at fourteen, okay, and that was in the days when you could leave school just after fourteen. And of course I had no interest in schools. Uh, just it was the, I hated the place. So all I wanted to do was to join the parachute regiment. So we uh, we went to the recruiting office at Romford at the time. My mother took me down there. We went through about joining uh, up uh, uh, the Junior Parachute Regiment. Then as a consequence, there was a Christmas dance at the school prior to me leaving. And I'd proper fancied this bird I'd seen there, who was the same age as me. Bear in mind, we're not even 15 yet. And one day before I left, I thought, well, I'll go and ask her out. And she only went, yes. Now... We were 14 then, <clears throat> we're both nearly 67, and we've been together all that time. Now, as a consequence, my head went head over heels in love. So I dropped going to join the army full-time because I wanted to be with the Love Me Life suit. But as a result, what I did do, I then went on to join the 10th Battalion Parachute Regiment, the TA, because I was just passionate. Now, I had... A, a fantastic number of years there learning to parachute. And, you know, a lot of people re don't realise that uh, a lot of TA people, they can become far more qualified than, you know, guys that are in it full time because the, the the courses you can get. And so I loved it. I mean, I was probably spending a little bit too much time away from it as well, but it got it out of my system. So, okay, you're in the TA, uh, but what are you doing um, for work? Right. We've... Um, as a family, my father had set up a company. We had an industrial cleaning company, high-pressure water gin, and it really took off. We started winning uh, major contracts at Fort for all kinds of work. And I started working all over the world. I mean, working in France, Germany, the Middle East, uh, South Africa, uh, donkey's years. Very successful because of the type of work we were doing. But as a result of that, obviously, I never lost my passion for getting involved with militaria. Now, the one thing I didn't have for that gun was a set of original canvas pouches. Never, you couldn't see them. Now, you're talking about the time where to look at anything military, you had to look at an exchange and mark, right? Not different now. Right, no so there internet. was no internet back no, then? No, nothing. And you, so you're talking about the, uh, the MP40? Yes, the yeah. MP40. And then one day I was looking at one of the um, gun magazines and somebody was advertising that they had some pouches. I thought, that's handy. And he actually was in Brentwood. So I contacted him, went up there and got the pouches. But then found out that he was also an armourer on the film sets. And at the time, he was working on Stanley Kubik's full metal jacket. Lo and behold, said to me, would you like to come to the film set? Which was at Beckton Gasworks. I went, well, I'll have some of that. Right? I remember that, actually, because um, Kubrick... Uh, uh, hated flying. He wouldn't fly. So, uh, that, so they created Vietnam yep. in the East End of yep. London at Beckton Gasworks. Yeah, incredible. And uh, the chap I was with, he'd done all the vet, he'd done all the weapons. Stanley Kubrick was a weapons nut, right? So I go down there on the film set with him. Lo and behold, get introduced to Stanley Kubrick. I mean, I, to be quite honest with you, I really didn't know too much about him. Spartacus, I knew, and that was about it. But it's Stanley Kubrick. That's probably what got me into getting involved with the film. That was the early, early days. Right. I, I don't know how true this is, but when they were filming Full Metal Jacket, he uh, Kubrick had imported thousands of palm trees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the end of the uh, filming, 
they were like, what are we going to do with all these palm trees? Yeah. So they then uh, sold them to local councils all down on the, the south coast yeah, of Britain. Yeah, they did. There was another set over near Upminster as well. They had a two sets, but the big set was down at Beckton, and they did. But also, lots of people, you'll see, driving around Upminster, loads of people got palm trees in the garden because they was all having, people was nicking them. Yeah, that's right. So if you go down <laughs> to Upminster, all down the yep. south coast of Britain, yep. all those palm trees are because of Full Metal Jacket. And, and what's an interesting item as well, uh, a thing about Stanley Kubik, right? So that we did the film and stayed in contact. I actually went to Stanley Kubik's house in St Albans. Amazing. So is that the helmet? So that is the helmet, okay, from the poster of Full Metal Jacket. Now, unfortunately, I've had it a long time, and you used to be able to see the born to kill here, but it's gone. Plus, a bit of rubber for the rounds have broken off, but that's the helmet that came straight out of Stanley Kubik's house at um, St Albans and was given to my colleague. As I say, it's the original one. You can still see it if you put an infrared light on it, okay? And the trouble is, and that was my own silly fault, I put it in an area where there was sunlight on it, but I can tell you 100%, that's the helmet. The glasses next to it are the actual gold glasses that are used by Matthew Modine. It was. There is gold glasses, flat screen, <laughs> right? And he was called the Joker. Let and, me put them on. Here we go. Okay. And that actually says the Joker in there. Right, okay. So these are the Joker's glasses. Yep. God, it looks like it's got a small, small head. Small head, yeah. I mean, look at those. That's it. There you go. <laughs> that, that's the Joker's glasses. Off a full metal jacket. Amazing. Now we had um, we got a lot of material off of that, but I got a bit of a flavour for doing the the film work as well. I was also very very keen to start getting into vehicles, and that's how I got into the vehicle side of it. So obviously I'm now bitten. I want to do more of this film work as well, but also that tied in with my passion for military artefacts and vehicles and that's where I first went and got my first vehicle which was a Kattenkrad. It's a, a tracked vehicle with a motorbike wheel on the front. It's a little small utility vehicle that the Germans made, used it very successfully, high and low ratio gearbox. Well I thought that was it, I've arrived and consequently I ended up getting three, right? They're quite hard to find now but that led me into where I went next. Well, I think that's a great place to take a break. Mm -hmm. And when we come back, uh, you can tell me all about how Steven Spielberg gave you the fright of your life. Yep, absolutely, 100%. Hello. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Amazing War Stories. I'm Ed Sayer, co-founder and producer of this show, and I just wanted to tell you about our new website, AmazingWarStories.com. Inside, you can find out more about our podcast, take a deep dive into some of the weapons and equipment used by our heroes, or you can sign up to our awesome newsletter, where we give you the lowdown on military museums, host fun reader polls, and of course, feature little-known amazing war stories that Bruce and I have come across during our research. So after you finish listening, please take time to visit, and if you think you have an amazing war story you'd like us to feature, then do get in touch just click on the link on our show notes. AmazingWarStories.com, the home of military heroes. Okay, welcome back to Amazing War Stories Extra Ammo. I'm Ed Sayer. Bruce Crompton here is about to tell us uh, about uh, Steven Spielberg and Bruce's Cat and Crad. 
Now, that, because I had the Cat and Crad, but also by then had quite a few other vehicles. And in Saving Private Ryan, there were a lot of German vehicles they needed. So through somebody I know, I got contacted. Would I supply some vehicles? Well, of course I would. Now, with every time I've done films, the deal is, okay, I've got to have access to the, access to the film set because it's great me. Now, this was all being filmed up at Hatfield. They'd actually filmed the beach landing scenes in Wexford, and I had some stuff out there. But I had three cat and creds on the set of Saving Brian, and I had my own driver there because I didn't want anybody else touching them. Lo and behold, I happened to be there one day. I've had me a bit of nosh there because it's lovely food on these film sets. And I'm looking for my driver. Where is he? Jackie's name was. Gompra Fag. So, hold on. so just for uh, our, our, our American listeners, uh, a fag is a British euphemism uh, for a cigarette. Absolutely, a roll-up one, right? Used to drive me round the twist because he's always disappearing for his fag. Anyway, so while I'm there looking for him, Jack, where is he? All of a sudden, Spielberg calls for a scene with the cat cred, or as they call it in the film, the rabbit. Lo and behold, well, where's the driver? He's not there. Stunt driver, get in it. Stunt driver's never driven the blooming thing. I walk back on the set and he's flying away with one of the uh, stars on the back of it. And it's going flying up the road and it goes round to the left and it nearly, nearly goes over. Well, I nearly had a jammed heart attack. I mean, I nearly passed out. Fortunately, it rebalanced and it goes in. Now, if you look at the film, it was so good, what could I say? And it's in the final scene. When that cat and crag goes flying around the corner, it nearly topples over. Well, I'm honestly, and I thought, that's it. Obviously, my man was off the set the next day, but I had some fantastic experiences. So, so you were more worried about your cat and crag oh. rather than the uh, the fact that, that those actors could have oh, been killed. Listen, you got to remember, these vehicles are very, they're expensive. They're very, and there's not many of them about. Now, if you're not about, and I've had other experiences where I've lent stuff to film sets, oh, we want to do a bit of a fire in the back or something like that. These were vehicles worth tens of thousands of pounds, right? But that was an experience that I, I walked on the set. I think I had a cup of coffee. I dropped one. And it when it got straight again, oh, I relieved. But it made for great film. So just um, tell me, how much is a, a cat and crad? And, and, and how, uh... Okay, a cat and crad now is about, I sold one on uh, combat dealers for about £128,000 now. £128,000? Yep, yep. Yeah, there are different. There are obviously there are early war ones, late ones. We've restored the one that's now at Bovington Tank Museum. That's a very early one, so we're experts with them. Uh, but because I had three, one a good friend of mine pointed out to me that I've only got one backside, so I've only got one now. But cracking little vehicle, cracking little vehicle. So uh, that's how you started. Now you're properly in. The movie business, yeah, yeah. supplying. What other movies have you? So we we did a lot of other films. I've had bits and pieces. A lot of the equipment I've had were uh, in other films. We've actually done some trans in the Transformers films. But the big one that I did, the big one that I did was Fury. Now I've got to be honest here. By then, by the time Fury came about, I weren't particularly interested. But then I get a call from David Ayer, the director, the director of Fury, introduces himself. So he said, look, I need some vehicles, blah, blah, blah. So I said, well, come up for the weekend. Lo and behold, him and the main producer turns up my house. I put them up. 
We had a lovely weekend. And because the man was passionate, not about, because he writes all the scripts and everything, but he's passionate about the military and he was passionate about the vehicles. The day he walked out my house, I took him back to the train station. I said, you can have what you want. Yeah, I mean, David Eyre, I mean, he's, uh, not many people know, but he is actually ex-military himself, yes, isn't he? he's a submariner, ex-submariner. Lovely, lovely guy. And But what he did, obviously, Brad Pitt was in the film and uh, they had a lot of allied Sherman stuff, but they were short on German stuff. So we rounded up all kinds of stuff we had because he wanted, even when the vehicles were driving, he wanted the correct sound. And, it, and it, you know, I that appeals to me, getting it absolutely right. Actually, uh, it's worth pointing out, isn't it, that um, I know that you're a real stickler for, you know, having everything perfect. And, and in our main podcast, Amazing War Stories, I think that's one of the things when we first started out, you insisted that all the sound effects yeah. were genuine and Absolutely. real. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't cut corners. Where we do restorations, and I know that's a blase thing to say because some people can do it on a budget or that, but if I'm going to do a project and restore it, and we've done some big projects, right, I have to do it right. I'm only a custodian. One day, everything I own will be owned by somebody else, and I want to keep you know, the memories of this stuff going. So, understand this from the outset. I can't wire a plug. I am useless. But I know how to find stuff and I know how to have a deal, right? But I've got fantastic guys working with me. Two sets of uh, brothers that work for me and they restore unbelievable things for me. So, I've so got, that's, that's a side business, isn't it? You yes, restoring... Yes, restoring vehicles. The, the problem is with the vehicles as well, when I restore them, I don't want to let them go. But something came along. Uh, I had a panther, a wrecked panther, on the film set of Fury. And a very good friend of mine down in Australia who's got the biggest private tank collection in his museum. And he said to me, Bruce, look, I, I'm desperate. I need, I need a panther. And uh, cut long story short, I negotiated getting him a panther. But I wanted to restore it. Now, sometimes I think, should I? It took four years it'd been on a range in france but the day that panther tank was finished and it rolled out of my workshop it was better than the day it was made in 1944 so we do big projects we do small projects the problem is you know none of us getting any younger i'm struggling getting me leg in these things and all that fortunately my dear lady wife can drive everything right so it's a passion of mine and I will carry on doing that. Obviously, I've got some vehicles uh, that we're getting piling up at the moment. We're doing some very interesting vehicles, but it's got to be done properly. And who who buys these vehicles? I mean, how, how, and also, how much uh, is that Panther worth? That Panther, if you wanted to buy it, if you were um, uh, Bill Gates and you said, I want a Panther, well, you can't have one because there ain't none, but you wouldn't be getting any change out of 14 million. 14 million. And it's just stupid. Yeah, it's just stupid. All tanks, Shermans, everything's just gone. They've all gone through the roof now. Absolutely through the roof. Obviously, Allied vehicles are a lot easier to get because there were so much more of them. For me, it's the hunt, you know. And I've a lot of German vehicles we've done because I've travelled all around the world looking for this stuff, you know. And I still love doing it. That's me. It's me mojo, you know what I mean? It's me. It's what keeps me going. And what, um, but what in particular uh, uh, about it is it because you're trying to keep? I mean, you've said to me before you're trying to keep history alive. What 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 drives you? 
Um, because you don't keep all this stuff, no, do you? No, I don't. But I, I, I have to be honest with you, and, you know, uh, that's where I'm going to... Amazing War Stories. Amazing War Stories is my life now because I've got to an age where I want to preserve our heritage and I want to preserve the memory of our veterans. So, as you know, I'm working with a lot of veterans groups. I'm working with a lot of army groups. And the big thing I've got the problem with at the moment is we lose the ability to have our museums open every month. We lose them every month. So my big mission now is to try and get people to support our heritage, which is our museums, and consequently that leads on to our veterans. Fantastic. After the movie business, you went into the TV business. You yep. had a TV series called, called uh, Combat Dealers. So I got a call from a company called uh, WAG TV, and they said, oh, we want to come up. Uh, we've been asked to do... Uh, a project about looking at people to restore tanks and that. Well, I just weren't interested or weren't my cup of tea. They said, oh, can we come up? And I thought it was to have a chat. Well, they brought a film crew up to do a little snippet. So up they've come, you know, a bit of a laugh, all my boys, a bit of fun. Wasn't interested, to be quite honest, you know. But I didn't know they'd gone, they wanted to do a programme about three different restorers, right, all in one programme. They come up and see me, my lads, heard the jip I'd give them, what goes on, the banter and everything. Next thing I know, I get a phone call saying they don't want to do it. They only want to do me, which led me in to meeting you, the Discovery Channel, and as a consequence, doing Combat Dealers, which has run for six and a half series. It's over 10 years or whatever. It's still on every day. Every time I go and stay in a hotel, put the telly on, I'm looking at myself. So, but it was very successful. We went round the world. Basically, they followed me doing what I'm passionate about. Going round the world, finding artefacts that need to be saved, restoring them, and then putting them A, B or C, whatever. Yeah, and then, uh, but disaster struck, didn't it? Yeah, we obviously, because, uh, you know, I'm an ex-paratrooper and all that, um, I started, ridiculous as it might seem, I started jumping out of, parish, out of planes again when I was 59. Now, I've been doing it since I was 20. So we were using round canopies, military canopies on the continent. Our right got back into it, etc. So for the show, we did quite a few parachute jobs. But then in 2019, there was a massive, a massive do where there were 37 Dakotas going to take off from Duxford and fly over to Normandy and we were going to jump out on another famous DZ. But to be in date, because you're not allowed to jump with those parachutes in this country, you have to get in date abroad. So I was doing a parachute jump in Holland at an old SAS jump site. Catastrophe. Uh, nobody's fault. It's one of them freak accidents. But it meant I spent seven months in hospital. I nearly lost my life. Everybody thought I was dead. Basically, I cr there was a canal and I went to turn it, the wind slowed down and I had a new American army parachute on and it virtually stopped and I crashed into a wood, but it turned me upside down, 42 foot in the air. So I'm hanging like a, a dressed chicken upside down, can't use the parachute. They can't get up to see me. I try eventually because I thought my leg was getting ripped off to get to another branch and I fell 41 foot head first. Mm. I, All my mates were there. Terrible. Yeah, I remember this so well. Um... Uh, because I was just at uh, uh, Discovery then. And, um, yeah, it was really shocking no, news. And, yeah. I, and uh, I remember that everyone thought, actually, you weren't going to make it. No, they didn't. I mean, I did, as I say, I, 
you know, they took so much. It was bad because the seven months I had in hospital, you know, I lost my spleen, titanium, all over my lungs collapsed. I had seven operations altogether and touch and go. And I'll tell you how bad it was. Twice while I was in Norwich Hospital, they called me family up twice because I didn't think I'd make the night. Now, that was then. This is now. It's over and it's done. Unfortunately, or sorry, fortunately, my wife has told me, I ever jump out of a plane, right, she won't be waiting for me this time. Because it was, a, but it took me three years to get over it. Although I was in hospital for seven months, it took me three months, three years because of the morphine and the drugs I was on. Yeah. So your jumping days are over. Yeah. Uh, now you're, you're uh, fully into amazing war stories. Yep. Um, you're promoting military museums. I guess it's... Uh, we should probably talk a little bit about that. Is, yeah. uh, what are your favourite museums? Now, for me, it's the smaller ones because during the pandemic, unfortunately, they suffered terribly. So all these little museums dotted up and down the country rely on volunteers and donations. Of course, it wiped them out. So many closed, it's ridiculous. Now, the problem with that is when these museums close down, all those artefacts get sold to people like me. I'm a bit different because I share everything. But a lot of people that do what I do, you'll never see them again. Lot go abroad and all that. And we've got to stop that happening. Now, there are some major museums up and down the country that do very, very well. But our real goal is to support the smaller ones as well. And it's a, don't forget, museums are a place of education as well. For youngsters, it's, it's really important. I don't want to bang on about that, but yeah. I'm passionate about it. But, yeah, it's not just about education, is it? It's also, they're places of remembrance, too. Oh, absolutely. You know, you know. unfortunately, again, we're losing our veterans daily, you know. I remember a time as a young man, I had an uncle that had been in the First World War and all that. They're all gone now. But, like, every day now, we're losing these veterans. I've had the honour to meet a lot of them and do interviews and talk with them as well. And I want to keep their memory alive. And the museums are the place to do that. Bruce, why don't you tell uh, our viewers and listeners more about our museum finder on AmazingWarStories.com? Okay, so what we've done here is one of the problems that, that there are many, many museums, we've identified 251, but they don't connect that well and their socials are probably not up to date. So we've gone out on a limb and contacted them all. And basically what we said, we're going to give you a platform on our website so that anybody that's going to have a weekend away and they're going to Leicester area or they're going to the Suffolk area, they type in the postcode they're going or where they live and it will show you every museum in that region that can be visited. And of course, it's a it's a banner flag way in exercise for the museum system. Yeah, and it's not just for British people though, is it? It's uh, for our uh, American or Australian listeners yep. or in fact, wherever you come from in the world, mm. is you if you're going to come over and make a point of visiting military museums, yep. it's a great resource, isn't it? Very easy to use. Oh, fantastic. And the thing is, obviously, with development, it's fantastic now, but as it grows and grows and grows, there'll be more information on that, about the artefacts, the time, the shows, if they've got special events on. So what we're trying to do is to get everybody to give us these details so that we can spread the word. Yeah, actually, and you can also sign up to our newsletter on our website and visit the artifacts trove why don't you just uh, tell 
how that works. Okay, so what we've done is we've got an artifacts trove where we will be taking artifacts, certain artifacts from different museums, and then you'll be able to look at them. You'll know the history behind them. I mean, there are thousands, but we're looking at the really, really interesting ones because people sometimes don't know what's behind the actual artifact. So we've got a separate page specifically relating to artifacts. You're going to be blown away with it. Yeah, great. And and uh, the some of the artefacts that you've uh, shown us uh, today, they're already on the site, yep. aren't they? Already but, on the site. But we'll be putting other ones like your German helmet <laughs> and uh, the Peter Royal uh, yeah, yeah. photograph. I right. should put a picture of Peter up as well because a very dear friend of mine. And he's stuck. As my wife keeps telling me, he's the guys that caused all the problems. So he wasn't. He was a lovely man. But please support us because we're losing museums, we're losing our heritage, we've got to stop it. Okay, so top three museums uh, for us to go and visit. Museums you think people should be aware of? Right. I think I think people are really aware of like the National Army Museum, yep. uh, the Imperial War Museums. They know about the bigger ones. Okay. What about three smaller ones? Right. I go and try and <clears throat> visit museums, not to grade or whatever and then I'll put a report on on social media get people to go there so for me I'll give an example the Green Jackets and the Rifles Museum down at Winchester Winchester's a lovely place all the old barracks and all that have now been turned into luxury flats but they're still in the building now and the museum is unbelievable anybody interested in the Battle of Waterloo they've got the best diorama you've ever ever seen in your life Aircraft museums. I've recently got invited up to Avro's at Woodford near Manchester um, in commemoration of, obviously, Roy Chadwick that designed the, the Lancaster, the Vulcan, everything. Fantastic, but unknown museum. Then there are all kinds of... I mean, very close to me, there's a museum at a place called Parham, and it's one of the 8th Air Force uh, museums. What those volunteers have done there is fantastic. You go in, they've redone all the buildings, uh, the bunk bed... And it's fascinating. So it's not just about what the planes were about. It's about the social aspect. And I'm very interested in that. You know, the, where I live up in East Anglia, they call it Little little America. Because you've got to imagine, that each American air base had about 3,500 people on. Yeah, I've incredible. got three around me. Yeah, incredible. Okay, so if uh, anyone's interested in visiting... Uh, those museums, of course, you can find them on our website, amazingwarstories.com uh, forward slash museums. And all the museums that Bruce has just mentioned, you can find their details there. OK, so I guess we should wrap this up. Right. It's been fantastic, Bruce. Fantastic. Um, One uh, of many, I hope. Well, absolutely. Um, in the next episode, who do you think we should get on? Um, I'm seeing uh, Phil Campion over the weekend. Uh, I'll be seeing Matt Hellier. Um, uh, we could get, obviously, Jason Fox on. or There's a number of people we can get on. But then, you know, OK, they're quite well-known names. But as you know, I have dealings with a lot of people through the regimental system that have got unbelievable stories. So it could be... Um, it could be a, a helicopter pilot or it could be somebody who was in the Pathfinders. Or, we will be bringing unbelievable, interesting people to these chats. Can't wait. All right, many thanks, and I hope you'll join us next time for more Amazing War Stories Extra Ammo. Thank you very much.